0: Welcome to the Knobcast! Thank you for dropping by. This is where we simplify Bitcoin. I'm your host, Mary Victoria, and this podcast is sponsored by Bitnob. Bitnob is an easy-to-use app where you can automatically save, borrow, earn, send, and receive Bitcoin all in one place at the cheapest rates. Download Bitknob, B-I-T-N-O-B, from the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store using the links in the show notes. Or visit the website at bitnob.com. That's B-I-T-N-O-B You've probably heard of Bitcoin. Well, obviously, that's why you're listening to this podcast. But where did Bitcoin come from? What is the history behind it? That's what this podcast is all about. Coming back on the show is Shadrach Chukwebuka Igwe. was in episode 4, so make sure you check it out. The link's in the show notes. Just the way he did justice to that episode, he did the same on this one. Get ready to be taken on a journey through the evolution of Bitcoin. And Chedrak traces Bitcoin's origins all the way back from when people used to use calories and precious metals. So buckle your seatbelts, subscribe to the podcast, drop a review, and without further ado, let's cue the intro. Shedraq, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you back.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back.
0: So for those who don't know you, do you mind if you can introduce yourself?
1: Okay, sure thing. My name is Shedraq Chikwebikar-Igri and I am a Bitcoin student. Bitcoin, not crypto. Because I got introduced into Bitcoin when I was looking for alternative ways of making money from traditional ways and also securing whatever little money I had because I did not trust the traditional brokers, the Forex brokers, which is where I started off to keep my money for me for the long term. So when I discovered Bitcoin and how it was able to provide security as well as protect you from inflation and also give you a positive return over time. It was, you know, it was a no-brainer for me to get involved. So that's basically the summary of how I got involved into Bitcoin.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And I, you know, one thing I really i i really appreciate you for is how you have made like bitcoin literally your whole life (laughs) which is really cool in this episode i was thinking we talk about the history of bitcoin so like where did bitcoin come from how did it come about
1: uh if if i was to say bitcoin did not happen like big bang you know it didn't just happen it was a series of evolution of an idea and the idea being how do we give freedom of commerce to humans because for a very long time human beings have not been able to transact or conduct business with themselves as freely as you know would have supported true human progression mm-hmm. before bitcoin the the gatekeepers of commerce have always been centralized institutions like kings banks governments and the states and most often than not these centralized uh, bodies always act in a way that is not beneficial for the general public so at some point, humanity had to figure out a way to get free from the centralized bodies and a little peek into history would tell you how money has evolved over time and how different forms of money have come and gone and most times when a new form of money comes it usually leads to prosperity because people are happy that okay this is a new way of transacting and communicating transactions between each other but over time when it becomes centralized and the the principle or the basics of what makes money becomes destroyed by those central institutions. Human beings tend to devolve into anarchy, chaos, and war. And this has been going on for a very, very long time. So really, it's been a a long time coming, and it's been a long drawn out battle between a uh, centralized body and the rest of humanity mm-hmm. so if you want if we want to talk about the history of bitcoin we would have to see bitcoin for what it really is which is just the most recent form of money in existence to come into existence Existence over the course of human history. There have been all other forms of money that have come into existence. And uh, some of them, like the earliest forms, you are beads or calories or metal, bits of metals, you know, all forms of unsophisticated items or commodities have been used as money over time. So that being that being said, always, money in every generation always runs into the problem. And that problem usually Manifests itself in the form of uh, inflation. Inflation meaning that, you know, one party gets to have access to way more of uh, the commodity being used as money. And when they get access to that commodity, it, be, it doesn't, it's no longer fair. Because if I can, if I have access, unlimited access to this commodity, which everybody agrees is money, then that means i can literally buy everything in the market and that creates the problem and it creates an imbalance in the ecosystem where some people are working very hard for their products because money is simply something we use to uh, exchange products and services so when i have an unlimited access to it the other party who's doing all the work and producing the products and services is shortchanged by me because I could just, you know, pack up all these commodities that I have unlimited access to that I don't even have to spend so much energy in producing and then take all the commodity produced by others, which is basically theft if you think about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this this, this uh, centralized access to a commodity that is used as money always leads to inflation and inflation uh, is simply an increase in the money supply in such a way that it becomes way more than the services or goods being that, that, that are in circulation. So over time, the, the history of the a quick rundown of the history of money started off uh, with human beings using calories and other unsophisticated commodities to trade. So over time, there has been this effort to find the best form of money that no one person can easily control and use it to the detriment of others. So that led to the transition of use from unsophisticated commodities to metals and then to coins, copper, brass, and then eventually silver, and then ultimately gold, which in even till today is still in use, even though it's at the nation state level so that's basically the history of money but in the 21st century now given the rise of technology bitcoin is the newest form and how did bitcoin come about bitcoin came about as a result of a slow development of ideas like i already explained and to talk about the history of bitcoin the you have to talk about the people that are, that were very instrumental in making it a reality and they go by the name of cypherpunks cypherpunks are a group of individuals that are mostly computer scientists that you know believed in the idea that human beings needed a form of uh, monetary technology that the government cannot control. And one would ask, why, why would they want to create something that is outside the government's control? Is the government not supposed to be uh, uh, um, an organization that is created for the benefit of hum, uh, humans? I mean, we're in a, demo, in a democratic uh, era. But the truth is, you know, as much as we're in a democratic era, the government has gone rogue and they went rogue a long time ago. They went rogue during the time that gold was used as the major form of money. It was during the time of uh, uh, the gold, the gold money, where people needed to transact using gold, and they figured out that gold was too bulky to be carried around. So they needed all to be stored because you could keep your gold in your house and the thief would come in the middle of the night and rob you of your gold.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah, so they had to figure out a way around it because human beings always like to solve their problems. They always evolve to solve their problems. So one of the ways they could solve that problem was to find somebody who had a vault or had enough security that would dissuade thieves from coming to rob. And people that you know invested in those kind of storage facilities that could not be easily broken or stolen from were the goldsmiths of Europe back in the day. And so they started depositing their gold with the goldsmiths for safekeeping.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in order to transact with this gold, they realized that. It was, there was still a problem. It was still too bulky to carry it. Like if you wanted to buy something like a land or, you know, high, high volume transactions, you, could, you couldn't carry the gold effectively because you still need to employ security uh, soldiers to help you guard the gold. Exactly.
0: Goods. On the road, something could happen. Thieves could come and intercept exactly. the gold.
1: Exactly. So uh, they devised a means of making it easier for everybody. That's where the gold receipts came into play. So what would happen is when you deposit your gold with the goldsmith, the goldsmith would give you uh, a receipt showing how much gold you had measured in weight. And with that receipt now, you could go anywhere and then write a new receipt, which you would sign with your seal or your signature, saying that you are transferring the ownership of this amount of gold, which is held at this particular goldsmith. So Mm -hmm. this other person, it was like a contractual uh, agreement where whenever that person you give that new receipt, he could go and claim that amount of gold which you signed off to uh, to his name. Mm -hmm. So that's how people started uh, started transacting. And it was very, very, very efficient at the time. It helped commerce a lot because instead of now carrying all that bulky gold around, you could just as easily write out. It was a form of check. We just write it out and give it to whoever you are know, paying. So the pro, it, it, this was what was used for a long while until such a time where the goldsmiths realized something. They came to a realization. And the realization they came to was that these people trust me. They don't, they never actually come to withdraw their actual gold. And all they trust is the receipts that I give them. So that means I can even write more receipts than the gold I have in my possession or in storage. Or I could give loans even if I didn't have the gold because these people trust me. And then I could charge an interest for it. So that started happening. Someone would come to the goldsmith and ask for a loan, a short-term loan the goldsmith would write a receipt and give to them and charge them a certain amount of interest in gold. So whenever the person went conducted their business, they would pay back in gold and pay the interest also in gold. So naturally, you can see that this, 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 uh, this newfound power that the goldsmith realized that he had to generate profit for himself, it soon became a big problem. Mm-hmm. Because what it meant was that he could meet, he started abusing the power, he could write as much loans as possible, even if he didn't have any uh, goal to back it up.
0: I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I just wanted to step in and tell you a little bit about saving Bitcoin with Bitnob. The minute I started using Bitnob, it changed the way I invest in Bitcoin forever. With Bitnob, I can create a plan and it automatically invests in Bitcoin for me using the dollar cost average strategy. That's it, nice and easy. Download Bitnob, B-I-T-N-O-B and watch your Bitcoin investments grow.
1: So, and what this meant was that if at any point in time that everybody came to withdraw their gold at once, there will be a problem because some people would not have any... Uh, any any gold available to be given to them because of the practice that the goldsmith has been doing. Yeah, and it, it's but,
0: ve- it's very similar to what we're also experiencing with banks, right? Yeah. Just yeah, as was, you said it, made was... so much sense. Like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what banks are doing. <laughs>
1: fractional reserve, it's called fractional reserve. So what happened was that the goldsmith started making a lot of money. So they started buying up a lot of properties because of the interest they were charging on these loans that they were giving to people. Money that didn't belong to them, but they were using it to make crazy profits. So And that's the story of how the bankers came about the goldsmiths eventually became the bankers that you know started keeping people's money and all of that and they started making a lot of profit off of people's money other people's money and they started owning everything so that's that's where it started so eventually when the the world you know how wars are fought over and over again or how wars are fought over and over again in europe those wars cost a lot of money and most times when you when you fight a war, you get to pay your soldiers in gold and all of that. So that meant that so many countries got bankrupt. Like if you lost a war, that means you go bankrupt because you already paid all your soldiers with your, your gold. So most times you needed to go and collect a loan from those goldsmiths stone bankers. And this became a problem because it now gave the, uh, the bankers the goldsmiths the power over money, and that power over money became so centralized that the the charging of interest became predatory, because they could set interest rates. They could set the interest rate at which you would pay back a loan you got from them. So sometimes this would lead to the impoverishment of people, because if you're not able to pay back the predatory loans, you, you they take over your property, and this you know led to many people becoming poor many countries because losing their sovereignty and all of that and then it now made you now also created a scenario where the the goldsmiths, struck the bankers we were now able to fix the price of different commodities. They could fix the price of different goods and services because I mean they were the ones that controlled the money. So this became a problem, and it has been going on for so long. That's that's how uh, the bankers originated, and that's how the problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve was created. So after the, uh, the, all the wars that happened in Europe, the First World War, the Second World War, and all the other Countries lost so much money and so much uh, power because of the devastation of the war, and America was the only country left standing with that still had enough power in terms of economic power. They started doing exactly the same thing that the go- the goldsmiths of Europe were doing, mm-hmm. and that led to the exact same problem that happened in in Europe to happen in america if you go through the history of america that's where you get to see the great depression yeah uh, all of that all of those economic woes, all those things come about as a result of the uh, mismanagement that the bankers do but they do all these things in a bid to own the country or own the property. It's called usury. Usury is the act of lending money at frivolous rates mm-hmm. where the person, the borrower is not able to pay back. Then you take over their collateral because you can't take a loan without collateral. True. That's very true. Yeah, and Most times when you want your collateral is usually your land or your, you know, your fixed capital assets that are supposed to be what you generate U revenue, which you're supposed to bargain or trade with. So this happened in America up to the point where the government did not have enough gold to back up to back up their government or their economy. So it now led to a situation where the the I think it was President Woodrow Wilson in 1933 that did a that made a declaration where everybody was to submit their gold to the government because the government had no gold in itself. And if the government doesn't have gold, that means the government has lost claim to you know managing the affairs of the country so in a bid to maintain control they seized everybody's gold and forced everybody to start using paper the same that paper that the goldsmith used to give out to people and that you could easily exchange for gold anytime you wanted the government now made it in such a way that you know you did not you you lost your ability to exchange that paper for gold so you now just had to trust in the paper without ever having to get having the assurance of Getting back your gold. I think it was called Decree 6102 of 1933 by President Woodrow Wilson. So, what this, what this meant in essence was that people now moved into a full fiat monetary system. It was no longer gold based, it was just at the discretion of the government and the Federal Reserve, which was created in 1913. And I think it would it would be important to mention something about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is like the, the Bank of America, the bank of the government. It's supposed to be owned by the government because they are the ones that print currency. Yeah. They are the ones that are supposed to hold the gold and then issue receipts for those gold. But uh, through some politicking, the Federal Reserve is not actually a federal government-owned establishment. It's oh. a private government. Yeah, it's a private owned establishment and the shareholders, uh, those bankers, those uh, individually owned banks that were once the goldsmith of Europe, they were the ones who created through government and economic sabotage, they created the Federal Reserve and forced the American government to issue that decree of uh, 1933, which made everybody uh, which forced everybody to submit their gold to the government, and in essence, they are submitting their gold to the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, by the way. Mm-hmm. So what it now meant is that the Federal Reserve became the the final resort when it comes, whenever it comes to money printing of money, maintaining of interest rates, and all that. And you could tell, and they are, they are a for-profit organization. They are, they only exist to make profits and not. So, you know, for the betterment of a nation's economy. So what this meant is that they could print money anytime because the government was heavily indebted to them. Just like I explained to you, mm-hmm. they, the bankers, would give you a loan that you cannot pay back. So at the end of the day, they get to take your collateral. So in the essence, in this in the in the case of the United States government, the bankers took control of the government. The government was the collateral for the loans which they gave the american uh, government when they were fighting their civil war Mm -hmm. so what this meant yeah it's crazy
0: it really is because i mean you just traced it all the way from you know the time when we were using you know calories and precious metals and now like it's starting to come together to make more sense why certain issues are coming up the reasons why banks are the way they are um and just the same way like you said like if today People just decide to withdraw all their money from a particular bank. That bank will go bankrupt. And it's so interesting, but at the same time concerning because... And that makes more sense why Bitcoin had to come in, right? like it, exactly. makes, you know just tracing the history alone you get to see the loopholes the problems that are coming up like imagine you said that the federal reserve is not even owned by the government that like blew my mind like oh my gosh are you for real yeah um yeah. so it's like the government that we look up to um to manage the general wealth of the is, yeah then it's not them that's really managing it now or like the government could be subject to these powerful people and we don't even know them that's why this podcast episode i I mean, for those who are listening right now is so important because as a Bitcoiner, when you understand the history and you like look back in time and see how far we've come, you tend to appreciate Bitcoin a lot more. So then how did the shift, how did yeah. we make the shift from the centralized system to a more decentralized system?
1: Okay, Uh. well... How it happened was that since the government no longer works for the people, rather it now works for the bankers, it means that, you know, because they have to make a profit. So most times they have to force the government to do things that are not in the best interest of the common man. Mm -hmm. So that means controlling education, controlling agriculture, controlling health, controlling every uh, area that's... It, that affects the common man. And most times this uh, effect, we are very, very undesirable. So that now led to the few individuals who actually understand or who had any form of knowledge of what was going on to start trying to, you know, create an alternative way of commerce or a, an alternative form of money. Because at the root of everything, the control was the control was in the money. So if you control the money, then you could wrestle control of the government out of the banker's grasp. So that's, that's the, that was the battle. That was the battle. And the battle uh, started with uh, the two schools of economics. There are two schools of economics, Western economics, which is the Keynesian economics, uh, school of economics, and the Austrian school of economics. Mm-hmm. The Keynesian school of economics believes that the government should be in control of the monetary policy and that they should have the power to increase money supply or decrease money supply as they saw fit in order to control uh, commerce in whatever way that they saw fit. So you can you can see how Keynesian is playing into directly into the hands of the bankers because If you believe that the government should have control of the money supply and should be able to tweak it or however they want, that means you mean that the banks should be in control of the money supply. But the Austrian School of Economics, they believe that money should be a form of commodity which nobody controlled, but except the market. The market is supposed to be what controls the supply of money or the demand and supply of money and the price of goods. Keynesian economists believe that the government had the uh, power to control the price of goods and services. So these two schools have been at a loggerhead for God knows how long, for so long. So And it's from this Austrian School of Economics now that different individuals started coming out uh, and expounding the idea that money should be out of the control of government.
0: Hey, hey, it's me again. Have you heard of the Lightning Network? It's an easy way of making Bitcoin payments faster and cheaper. With Bitknob, you can send and receive any amount of money in Bitcoin across the world. Mm Mm-hmm. You heard that right. Across the world with little or no fees and in seconds. For speedy Bitcoin transactions, choose Bitnov. Download Bitnov, B I T N O B, on your favorite app store today or visit the website at bitnov.com, that's b i t n o b.com.
1: So, then comes the internet. The internet is very instrumental to the origin of Bitcoin. When the internet came out, it was it was a very big blow to the government because the the government had to had a motive and an aim to control the flow of information, because if they control information, then that means some people never get to learn about what is really happening, because it's all steeped in deception anyway. So if you never get to know the, the truth about the Federal Reserve, you would always think that it's, you know, it's a government thing. So you think that by electing new officials every every four years that, you know, you can get to effect a change into the standard of living or the affairs, the economic affairs of your nation. But that's a fallacy because irrespective of who is the president, as long as the, the money, monetary power belongs to the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, then nothing is ever gonna change. So when the internet came out, it brought about a flow of information which started enlightening a lot of people. And when the internet came out, it enabled uh, certain technologies like encryption. Encryption is a way of encrypting information in such a way that only the person that it's meant for would be able to see the information. Then it also brought about open source technology. Open source technology is any form of software or technology that can be downloaded by anybody and can be modified in any way that you want, as opposed to closed source, like Apple is closed source, where you can modify their software because they have this license where you know it's like their intellectual property. So, but open source technology is one that that leads to a free transmission of ideas and information across across the internet. Then the the third thing that the thing that also helped in the in the in the development of Bitcoin is peer-to-peer sharing, a way of sharing. Things among different individuals on the internet, as opposed to a centralized body managing all the data. So, if you get this data, you have to go to this, this centralized body to get the data. So, peer to peer sharing is where I can share to you directly without having to rely on a centralized body. So, these three, uh, these three inno- inter- uh, internet innovations really uh, were instrumental to the coming of bitcoin encryption open source so, uh, open source software development and peer-to-peer sharing and a very notable name in in encryption the, the one of the person that, let, that developed one of the key aspects of encryption that brought about uh, bitcoin was his name is phil zimmerman and i encourage everybody to look into him and you know, understand more about his story so these three these three uh, the, uh, internet innovations that came about opened up the way for Bitcoin because taking advantage of these three things, which are not in the control of the government that is the, that is the puppet of the Federal Reserve, individual, common everyday individuals we are able to brainstorm amongst each other and, uh, and decide this is what is going on in the world and this is what should be going on in the world and how do we make this thing happen. So these three Uh, Internet Innovations brought about the the cypherpunks. The cypherpunks are a group of individuals that believed in privacy, in human privacy, because the government always wants to know what you're doing. Because if they know what you're doing, they can stop you when you're about to, you know, come after them Mm -hmm. and all the atrocities. Yeah. So they because of encryption, because encryption made it possible to send private messages to each other. The cipher pumps were able to create a mailing list. A mailing list uh, is, like a, is like a group of people that you know they create this. They interchange emails amongst themselves. It's like uh, a group message, so mm-hmm. to speak. A group chat, so to speak. But it was encrypted. So when they created the mailing list, they started. Uh, a, I think the name of the person that created the Cypherpunk group is Eric Hughes. Yeah, in I don't remember the year, but in that main mailing list, that was where they started talking about, talking and discussing about various topics that affected different people, uh, like economics, computer science, philosophy, and, you know, all these different areas of life. And it was truly in in these discussions that they began to realize the true nature of the world as we currently live in it. And eventually, they got to the point where they realized that there are certain things that need to be done Mm -hmm. for human beings to move forward. So from that mailing list, uh, certain people said creating different... Ideas or theories that could lead to a better, uh, a better world. Some of the notable people in that list were the pioneers of what we now know as Bitcoin, and the theories that they that they postulated and the formula that they came up with are some of the things that make up the Bitcoin protocol today. Some of the names are uh, We Die, Hal Finley, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, even though that was not his real name, yeah. uh, Adam, Adam Bach. Some of these names are very notable in the Bitcoin community, and they are the ones that did the uh, foundational work that led to the creation of Bitcoin. So eventually, Satoshi Nakamoto came came uh, came along in two thousand and eight and released the white paper. And what he literally did in essence was he took, he drew from all this works by other uh, cypherpunks punks in that mailing list. He collected all their different ideas and tweaked it and formed it into a, a wholesome framework which became Bitcoin and the Bitcoin protocol as we know it today. And even t- today, it's still it's still a community-driven affair. So in you know, as much as people keep saying Satoshi Nakamoto is the inventor of Bitcoin, but I feel like I, I feel like it's a very convenient way to, you know, to decentralize the idea of uh, bitcoin origin because if it was pointed to one person one known person perhaps the government would have come for the person by now true so, absolutely. but using satoshi nakamoto which is a which is nobody, it meant that, you know, everybody was safe from the government. So basically, that's how, that's, that's how, that's the rundown of how Bitcoin came about.
0: Wow, that is incredible. And it's just, I mean, I'm currently mind blown and I know that As a Bitcoiner, just hearing the history and knowing the whole progress just makes me even prouder of prouder like owning it, because now it's like I'm not only owning something that could be that is like a major solution to a lot of financial problems or even systemic problems. Um, I'm also a part of a community of people like whose mission is to like better the better the world in actual fact, right? Um, So this. I know Satoshi Nakamoto is like a very, popular name that we hear in the bitcoin space nobody knows who's, who he is but it's really cool to know that it's not just one person right so yeah. there are some theories that satoshi nakamoto is a group of people um, yeah. but then well speaking of theories um one thing that i i came across you know while looking into the history of um, bitcoin is that there are so many different perspectives to bitcoin um, and i think that was one study or report, I'm not very sure, that actually divided it into like five different groups. And for example, we have the idealists who believe that, um, you know, they realize that there are c- certain problems in the financial, in- financial institutions and that um, there was need for a centralized, a decentralized ledger to solve these problems. And then we have like another set of people who are we call the libertarians who believe that, um, you know, Bitcoin is more of like this solution to create more freedom for the people in that system. For example, that's where we're financially autonomous through Bitcoin. And then we have mm. the savvy young people that's like we that are so like into te- technology who they see it more as like, um, how do I put it? This fascination with the fact that technology could solve a lot of problems. And then I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, the fourth and fifth group. So the fourth group are like the investors who invest in Bitcoin because of the speculative um, Advantage, So they, they take advantage of the highs and, and the lows to make like quick profits. And then we also yeah. have the um, portfolio balancers who invest in Bitcoin or who see Bitcoin as a way of protecting their overall wealth and portfolio. So yeah. I it's even though like sometimes because what I noticed um, from a lot of people is that, you know, there's this thing that they say on the Internet that um, the source of Bitcoin is unknown and um, because it's unknown, known and i'm putting unknown in quotes um people have mm-hmm. like different perspectives and views about bitcoin but you know just by understanding these five different like sets of people who view bitcoin differently it just shows how bitcoin is an all-inclusive um mm-hmm. all-inclusive system all-inclusive um currency yeah
1: i mean it's this the, the five different uh perspective that you mentioned i, I think it's it's possible that it, it's possible that you know it has this different forms of appeal to different people because in in the creation of bitcoin there are a lot of things you're considered and i consider bitcoin as a a crossroads where philosophy economics mathematics and commerce all meet it's 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 adapt- Bitcoin brings all these different uh disciplines together. So coming out is going to appeal to different people for different reasons.
0: Mm, true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's why you have some people using it as uh a hedge you have other people using it as a store of value like uh el salvador is doing right now Mm -hmm. you have people using it as strategic reserve like uh, michael silo is doing and you have people that are interested in it because of the technology which is the developers the mathematicians and the programmers and you have people who are using it as legal tender because uh commerce is nearly impossible like i think we I think it was with you i was talking about how uh some people are closed off from the world economy yeah <laughs> They can't can transact to each other that means commerce is impossible for them but with bitcoin it becomes possible so i think it's the fact that uh the the pioneers of bitcoin were we're not just you know they were not just focused in one area of life they they transcended every area of life when 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 they were thinking of Bitcoin, they thought about it philosophically, mathematically, economically, and commercially. Even governmentally, they they also factored in the uh, the principles of governance within the Bitcoin protocol. So you know, it's amazing because. Bitcoin will appeal to anybody and everybody.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know, as you as you mentioned that, what popped into my mind was all the episodes that we have so far on the Nobcast, and I just remembered how each person who came on the show came like they were a- attracted to Bitcoin for different purposes. And as you said it, it was like, yeah, that's 100% true. Um, People sort of found solace in Bitcoin for so many different reasons. And it's just really amazing. I feel so happy and like so, so in awe of how awesome Bitcoin is. And just, Yeah. yeah, like, and I think this is an amazing way to start the new year really like for those who are veterans in the Bitcoin space. I mean, look, looking back into the history is just, An amazing way to just feel more devoted to, you know, this new system, right? The same for the newbies who are just coming in. Um, Just knowing about this history is an amazing way to like, it just makes more sense why certain things are happening in the financial space, why um, Bitcoin turns out to be a solution for major problems. So this episode to me personally and i would really love to hear what um, our audience has in mind too so feel free to drop a tweet <laughs> um but i feel like just knowing the history alone is just so important for any bitcoiner out there and i'm so grateful that you came on the show again um to share your insights
1: it is my pleasure really
0: <laughs> thank you so much Shadrack. i really appreciate you
1: you're welcome and as always thank you for having me
0: what an amazing episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we have. Subscribe to know when next we release a new episode. Drop a review. Let us know your thoughts about the podcast. Follow Bitnob on Twitter at Bitnob underscore official. That's at B-I-T-N-O-B underscore O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. See you in the next episode.